Please help the Historians Podcast continue to make history come alive. Click on the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com. This is Charles Gehring, uh, director of the New Netherland Research Center, which is in the New York State Library on the seventh floor near the uh, main desk. I've been uh, translating Dutch records for 40-some years. These are uh, the original records of the Dutch colony here in the 17th century. I'm also busy promoting people's knowledge of uh, Dutch heritage in the area. So it's not just a translation project, but a dissemination project as well, and an education project. We uh, try to make people aware of the unique area that they live in, in the Hudson Valley and Mohawk Valley. This is the Historian's Podcast, and I'm Bob Cudmore. Charlie Gehring uh, joins us. The, the The Dutch called the colony... New Netherland, did, did they not? And uh, how long did, did the Dutch rule it? They were in the Hudson Valley as early as 1612, shortly after Henry Hudson uh, came into the uh, river in 1609. And they started uh, a trade relationship with the local Indians and then the, the Mohawks. We're here for... Uh, oh, until 1664. Then they came back again after the English takeover for nine years. The Dutch came back and uh, for another 14 months before it uh, was agreed upon that uh, New Netherland would uh, remain uh, New York uh, forever. As you said, the, the colony we know the most about, or I mean, we live up here, so we know that Albany was part of this. Uh, New York City, called New and then called New Amsterdam, was part of it. But the colony extended uh, farther south? Oh, yes, all the way to Delaware Bay. Uh, Cape May uh, on Delaware Bay is named after a Dutch uh, explorer. And uh, originally, the Dutch laid claim from, let's say, Martha's Vineyard all the way to Delaware Bay actually comprising all of the uh, future states of uh, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, Delaware, and Pennsylvania. Now, I've, I've seen you in person uh, talking about uh, this uh, project that you've been working on and, and other things, and I was watching a, a, a YouTube talk that you did, and you said you started to address uh, misconceptions about the Dutch in America. And you said one misconception is people say, well, the Dutch only wanted to make money. It was more than that, wasn't it? Oh, definitely more than that. It, uh, they had, there was a, there was a uh, uh, controversy among the Dutch and whether they would actually remain a company, a company uh, colony and uh, have troops brought over from the home country to uh, protect the area, or to make it an independent colony, one that could survive on its own. And uh, it was uh, intended to be a a viable colony, an outlet for uh, refugees pouring into the Netherlands from 
various wars, the Thirty Years' War, the Great Northern War in Scandinavia, and so forth. And it was a way of giving people a new opportunity in the Netherlands to come over here and uh, start a new life. It wasn't just a a money-making proposition. It was one that they actually wanted to uh, turn into a viable uh, colony. And also an outlet for their uh, goods, their manufactured goods. Uh, So it it was uh, an economic venture in a way, but... uh, it uh, it followed other uh, other countries' ventures abroad, and that's an interesting point you make about the, the Netherlands over in Europe. That a lot of people fled there for various reasons. For example, the English Puritans, or some of them, the ones that came to America, were living in the, the Netherlands before they uh, came here. Exactly. Yeah, they. I think it was 13 years they lived in the Netherlands, and one of the reasons why they decided to leave was because their children were becoming Dutch. <laughs> they uh, they were speaking better Dutch than their parents, and uh, they were afraid that they were being assimilated, and they didn't want to assimilate. They wanted to maintain their own identity, so they ended up. Uh, I think they were originally heading for New Jersey, the New Jersey uh, area, and they ended up, because of storms and so forth, navigational problems, they ended up in uh, in uh, New England. Another misconception you say that you, uh, you address or people um, bring up to you a lot is that the Dutch bought um, Manhattan for $24. That's not true? That's one of the biggest pieces of nonsense. <laughs> if you ask somebody about New Netherland or about the Duchess, maybe the only thing they re- uh, know about, it, or maybe Stuyvesant's wooden leg, uh, is that $24 business. Now that that figure comes from uh, 60 uh, gulden, 60 guilders, when it's... Uh, when report is sent back to the Netherlands that the island of Manhattan has been purchased for 60 guilders worth of goods, that figure was taken in the 1840s by a historian, and they used the rate of exchange at that time. And uh, not only is it inaccurate because it's a, a 1640 rate of exchange, but nobody has ever adjusted it for inflation. It was a considerable amount of money, and uh, these would have been uh, hard hardware, uh, hard goods that the Dutch always had aboard their ships uh, to trade with. Uh, knives, uh, awls, you know, the awl to poke holes in leather, mm-hmm. uh, scissors, mirrors, things that the, uh, that the natives uh, couldn't produce or didn't produce themselves, and, and uh, to them, it, they were invalu- invaluable pieces of merchandise. So the ironware, the axes, and so forth improved the uh, natives' uh, technology, uh, their ability to uh, work with wood, work with leather, with the awls, and uh, so forth. So it's it's not a it's not a <laughs> an accurate uh, figure. Uh, $24, but it, but it has that uh, that edge to it that 
people like to hang on to that uh, took advantage of the uh, uh, of the natives and i think if anything they thought that they were getting the best of the deal because they were getting products they couldn't produce and to them it was just a temporary thing at first they considered that you can't own land you can't possess land land was like air and uh, you could rent the space, but uh, after a period of time, you had to renegotiate. And uh, so it's, uh, if you look at it in, in those uh, uh, lights, it's, uh, it's a different situation. Now, you mentioned Peter Stuyvesant and saying he had a wooden leg. Did he have a wooden leg? Yes, his right leg. Uh, he was... Uh, uh, commander of uh, uh, Curaçao in 1644. This is before he becomes director general of New Netherland. And uh, they, uh, the Dutch were intent on retaking the island of St. Martin, which is right there on the corner. They called it the, the hook uh, uh, of the Caribbean, the, the corner of the Caribbean. Ships had to pass by to uh, go on to uh, Europe. And uh, the Dutch originally had built a fort there, Fort Amsterdam, actually, uh, but the Spanish from uh, Puerto Rico had taken it over. So Stuyvesant went with uh, seven ships and 300 soldiers to uh, retake the island. And uh, they put cannon up on a bastion opposing the fort on the other side of this small bay. And Stuyvesant the next day went up with a flag, and uh, the Spanish fired two shots at, uh, at this uh, uh, bastion uh, with cannon taken from the ships. And one of them bounced up and hit him in the right leg. Uh, and uh, he calls it, in a letter that he wrote back to Amsterdam, uh, a grove kogel which means a crude ball, and I think it was probably a stone, maybe. But it was mm -hmm. enough to uh, damage his leg uh, so that it had to be amputated. And uh, we're not sure where the leg was amputated. It's possible that it was done on St. Christopher, uh, an island close by, which, was, which is now St. Kitts. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, it sort of took it took him out of action, uh, and uh, but the Dutch uh, stayed in a late siege to the fort for almost a month. But uh, they couldn't; they didn't have enough ships to close the island off from being resupplied from Puerto Rico. So they finally had to uh, uh, give up, and Stuyvesant uh, had uh, gone already gone back to uh, Curacao to recover. Peter Stuyvesant ended up being the top man or person in um, what we call New York City, right? Yeah, that's right. He, uh, uh, he went back to the Netherlands. His doctors on Curacao said that the warm climate wasn't conducive to healing his uh, amputation. Just to endure an amputation at that time and survive uh, was quite a feat, <laughs> And uh, he managed to get back to the Netherlands. Um, well, they ran into a storm. They lost their mast and had to get a new one off the coast of Ireland and so forth. So it was quite a trip back. 
while he was back in the Netherlands, he married uh, the daughter of a Walloon uh, minister, uh, Judith uh, Bayard, and uh, also uh, kept uh, working with the West India Company, and they decided that he was probably, probably, probably the best person to send over uh, to New Netherlands and try to state, uh, straighten matters out uh, because of previous uh, director's uh, mm-hmm. uh, involvement uh, uh, with financial affairs and with the Indians and so forth. What does Walloon mean? Uh, Walloon is uh, it's an area of uh, Belgium. They're French-speaking, and uh, they uh, were Protestants. Mm-hmm. And uh, this is why... Uh, uh, when the uh, uh, when the Reformation uh, swept through the Netherlands, uh, the uh, French-speaking uh, French-speaking Walloons, uh, many of them ended up in the Netherlands. So they're French-speaking uh, uh, French-speaking Protestants. Back to Peter Stuyvesant over in New Amsterdam. Um, he was. It was on his watch that the British came in. Why did the British want this colony? Why did the British want to take over uh, New Netherlands? Hegemony <laughs> and nothing else. Uh, they they had uh, New England and they had the tobacco colonies uh, to the south of New Netherland, and they they wanted the the whole area, and especially the the tobacco colonies of Virginia and Maryland, they were going full steam, and tobacco had become the uh, uh, product in in Europe. And uh, they actually tried to grow tobacco in the Hudson Valley, but it was inferior to anything coming out of uh, uh, Virginia or Maryland. Uh, So uh, in order to uh, get their tobacco uh, back to Europe, they could just go across uh, the peninsula to the Dutch colony on the Delaware River and uh, trade it with the Dutch, and they wouldn't have to pay any taxes or uh, whatever, and the Dutch would take it back to Europe. So it was sort of a it was sort of a, a hole in their uh, merchandising scheme to get the tobacco back to the. Uh, England and uh, to pay uh, uh, tax on it. Uh, so mm. they were losing tax money uh, in the process. And it was also the case where they wanted the, the entire coast mm. of, yeah. Uh, yeah. of North America and not just uh, New England and uh, Virginia. Now, in the, the, the material I saw, your talk on uh, YouTube or, or some cable uh, system like that, uh, you said another myth is that Peter Stuyvesant uh, gave up the fight with the British or without a fight. I mean, he just handed over the colony, did he? Well, he was, he was convinced uh, by the situation. Um, I, in fact, I just translated a document uh, uh, that indicates in no uncertain terms that they didn't have the gunpowder to resist. Uh, the the gunner, Constapel uh, in Dutch, uh, the head gunner said, if we started firing in the morning, it would would have been over by noon. 
and uh, it was just uh, a matter of uh, not being uh, totally prepared for such a, a situation. Um, the uh, English had about 300 troops aboard their uh, four ships, and they landed them on Long Island and uh, were heading to the ferry in uh, where Brooklyn is now, the ferry ran where the Brooklyn Bridge is right now. That was the uh, the ferry route over to Manhattan. And uh, the situation would have been if they resisted, fired one shot, the city would have been open uh, for looting. Uh, uh, the English had already been uh, coming over from New England and uh, from the various villages, English villages within New Netherland, and ready to cross over and uh, and uh, loot uh, loot the place. And uh, they were uh, Stuyvesant was eventually convinced that this was the better uh, way to do it uh, was simply open the city. And at that time, it. Uh, there was no war between uh, the Netherlands and England at the time. Uh, war had uh, not broken out or been declared. And uh, it was a situation where you could uh, uh, possibly uh, simply reno reno uh, renegotiate the uh, city back uh, to the Dutch. And in fact, the Dutch had already sent a squadron of ships uh, over with the Router, one of their famous admirals, uh, to retake New Netherland. So uh, to to him, he had options, and he felt that he wanted to eventually wanted to save the city from disaster, from from looting, and that uh, he would be able to recover it uh, in uh, in negotiations. Uh, war eventually did break out, the Second Anglo-Dutch uh, War. Uh, De Ruyter got tangled up, in, unfortunately, in the Caribbean on his way over, and he uh, took uh, some shots uh, try, trying to uh, uh, take uh, Barbados and uh, felt that he wasn't uh, uh, strong enough to... Uh, uh, take the colony, so he avoided it and went back to the Netherlands just in time for the war to be declared, the Second Anglo-Dutch War. Mm. Yeah, uh, so it, it, it's a it's an interesting story, but uh, uh, the uh, the Dutch were convinced that this was just a temporary setback, and that eventually they would. Uh, they would regain control. We're talking with Charles Gehring, director of the New Netherland Research Center uh, at the New York State Education Department in uh, Albany. Uh, I've known uh, Charlie over the years, but never had him on the podcast before. But we did have your assistant on, and I wondered what happened to her. Her name was, or is, Yanni Venema. Um, she was from Holland, and it, she ended up working with you with translating these uh, old documents? Right. Yeah, she came over to visit a boyfriend uh, that she had met, in the, an American in Netherlands, and he worked at the state uh, uh, in the health department uh, in the same, uh, uh, same complex I work in. 
and uh, she was uh, uh, in Albany one day with nothing to do, and she decided to see him and uh, asked uh, for uh, a map of New Netherland where she could buy one. And uh, all you had to do at that time was to mention Dutch, and they would send the person to me, the 11th floor. So she ended up uh, talking to me and seeing what I did, and uh, I got her trained to read seven. She couldn't read 17th century Dutch at the time, but uh, we worked on uh, getting her up to speed on documents, and she started transcribing uh, documents for me. I did the translations, and she uh, she transcribed. We always, before we uh, translate a document, we always make a uh, transcription of the Dutch, you know, line for line, exactly as it's laid out in the Dutch document, uh, so that we don't have to work with the originals. And also, while you're doing that, you're working out a translation in your head. Uh, it's uh, it's something I've uh, uh, a practice I've followed for years, and uh, so she was uh, she ended up uh, uh, divorcing the guy. They got married, and she ended up divorcing him and stayed, and uh, worked uh, with me for uh, oh almost uh, uh, thirty five years. But went then went back to Holland. Then went back to Holland, right. right. In fact, the last volume that uh, it, it, we published uh, is volume eight of Council Minutes, and it has both of our names on it. I did the first half, and she did the second half. Mm-hmm. And uh, then uh, she did volume 13, which is count, uh, uh, Correspondence, and that she did on her own. And uh, so, and it's out at Syracuse uh, right now, awaiting uh, publication. So, now, if anybody's uh, listening and says, "Well, what's this, this for? All this uh, translation?" But over the years, and I got this in talking to Yanni Venema and um, maybe hearing about what you're doing over the years. But over the years, more and more scholars and popular writers. Uh, the one guy who comes to mind is a man named Russell Shorto, who wrote a book called The Island at the Center of the World, which is Manhattan, and based a lot of it on the work that you'd, you've done uh, translating the, the Dutch uh, colonial records. So there's been a lot of use made of what you've done. Exactly. He, he, came, uh, uh, he came up to, he had heard about uh, our uh, project, and he came up for one of our conferences, and uh, he uh, pitched this story that he eventually produced as Island the Center of the World to Doubleday, I think it was. And uh, they gave him a uh, gave him money to uh, uh, work on it, and he spent two years coming up. Either once or twice a week, he would drive up. He was living in Putnam County at the time. We worked with him and gave him information, and he kept typing it into his uh, laptop. And before I knew it, he had a, a manuscript. <laughs> <laughs> he has raised our visibility more than anyone else. People are still calling me up about that book. And wow. uh, I, 
people who have just discovered it. It's a it's a re- very readable history of uh, New Netherland. Now, are you of Dutch origin? No, no, I'm German and Italian. But uh, you've become a, a knight or something like that, or, uh, honored, bestowed by the Queen of the Netherlands? Yeah, I, 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 that was uh, probably the only time I've ever been totally surprised in my life. It was at a dinner we had at, at uh, one of our conferences, and the consul general was there, uh, Dutch consul general from the Netherlands, and he got up to give a talk. They usually, the Dutch would always, somebody from the consul would always be there, and I figured he was just going to give a talk, and suddenly he asked me to come up, and he pinned this uh, medal on me, and this was uh, the uh, order of uh, Oranje Nassau, Orange Nassau. And it's uh, bestowed on people who've uh, promoted Dutch heritage and so forth. And uh, it's a, it's like a knighthood. Uh, and uh, you only keep the uh, medal while you're alive. You're supposed to turn it in. So I, I got somebody else's medal who had, uh, had died. And there's one other thing I wanted to squeeze in because we're almost out of time, is that you... And uh, someone else that you uh, uh, grew up with, if you, if you will, uh, some years ago, I mean, it's decades ago by now, put out a, uh, a book about a trip which uh, one of the Dutch, a uh, Dutch barber surgeon made from Fort Orange, which is what uh, now Albany, up through the Mohawk Valley. Apparently the first trip by a European into the interior of the country. Exactly, yeah. This is Bill Starner from St. Johnsville. Uh, he and I were friends, and uh, he uh, did some work for me. He was a, a, a graduate student at uh, SUNY Albany, and, uh, in fact, he indexed the Kingston papers. Uh, so we, uh, we, uh, he knew what I was doing, and uh, we eventually... Uh, I eventually got an, a grant to go out to uh, California to the uh, uh, library uh, in uh, San Marino and make a transcription of this guy's report of uh, of uh, Harman Meinditz of Funden Bochart. He's mm-hmm. a barber surgeon who was sent out to find out why the beaver trade was falling off. You mentioned how uh, your friend Bill Starna is from St. Johnsville, but you're from the Mohawk Valley, too. Where did you live up there? Born in Fort Plain, right along the Erie Canal in my grandmother's house. <laughs> and didn't you live in Nelliston for a while? Uh, after the war, uh, uh, my father uh, bought a house in Nelliston. Uh, we lived on State Street in Fort Plain through the war, and I think it was 45 that uh, that we moved to Nelliston. Yeah, in, in fact, uh, he bought the house that uh, Bill Dalen, a pro baseball player, lived in. In fact, you gave me the scoop on that uh, for my uh, column in the Daily Gazette at the time about that, that baseball player. Another local angle, that when you were in college or something like that, you worked part-time for the railroad, and you were there when there, there was a big derailment uh, in the Fonda area. 
Right, right. I was in the Fonda uh, signal tower over the train station, and uh, uh, the train went by. It had burned out a, uh, a hot or a, uh, a journal uh, box, and uh, the wheel was sheared off and uh, wiped out all of the switches four tracks at that time. Well, back to the New Netherland Research Center. Will you finish this project, or is this going to be, in a sense, beyond your your doing it, and I hate to say, in the years you have left? Well, I'll, I'll take it as long as I can, uh, uh, as long as my eyes hold out. That's Charles Gehring, who is director of the New Netherland Research Center at the New York State Education Department in Albany. I'm Bob Cudmore, and you've been listening to The Historian's Podcast. Please help The Historian's Podcast continue to make history come alive. Click the GoFundMe link on our website, bobcudmore.com.